governments are desperate to open their borders under pressure from airlines and travel companies crippled by coronavirus. But what about the travellers? People are frightened. People are frightened and it's going to be hard to convince them to travel. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today on The Detail, global tourism is slowly cranking up. We look at which countries are leading the way and what changes might be permanent. Hey, this I do for Queenstown. That's Queenstown Mayor Jim Bolt on a bungee jump to show that his town is open for business. A new thing I would love to do would probably be... I'd love to swim with dolphins. And a domestic tourism campaign's been launched to get New Zealanders to do something new. Best country in the world, I have to tell you. (laughs) There's talk of a South Pacific bubble that would include Australia. Things are looking good. Um, there's been a little, a little bit of a um, blip in, in Victoria. And the last thing either Prime Minister Morrison or myself want, and we've discussed this, is, is you know exporting cases to each other. That's a that's a burden no one wants. So I think once we feel both feel satisfied that we're not running those risks, then you'll um, then you'll see some movement. But of course, it matters that Australia is able to move around domestically too and internationally. <laughs> Mickey and Minnie Mouse took the stage as a band played. In Shanghai, the first Disneyland to reopen reveals what it's like to go to a theme park in the new germ-phobic era and how China is starting to unlock its tourism to its own people first. Infrared cameras with facial recognition software scan each person for possible fever. A personalized QR code shows up on each person's smartphone. Only those with green codes are allowed in. Workers continuously spray disinfectant and hand sanitizer can be found almost everywhere. With all the changes that's required for this, that and the other, they're slowly starting up and they're being cautious. China's enormous, so if they even got domestic going at at half speed, that would be miraculous. I'm talking to travel journalist Elizabeth Becker in Washington. She wrote the 2013 book Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism, a look at how the $8 trillion industry became the largest global business in the world. Last year, I talked to her about over-tourism. Now, we're talking about under-tourism. In early April, as the world went into lockdown, she wrote in National Geographic about projections of a global loss of 75 million jobs and 2.1 trillion US dollars in revenue. At the time, the US Travel Association told her the impact there would be six or seven times greater than the 9-11 attacks. She's watching now as different countries tackle the revival. It's so hard to keep up because each country is doing something different. Each country is opening up slowly. If they see it's not working, they immediately retract. In China, they're isolating a new city in the northeast where they found a virus. Mm. So it's, it's step by step and very patchwork because there's no global United, the United Nations World Tourism Organization simply does studies, and, and sadly, the international institutions aren't as strong as one would want them to be in this pandemic. So you're saying that each country just makes its own rule, or each city even yep. makes its own rule? Yep. And as countries come out of the pandemic, you know, the first consideration is going to be health, of course. And different countries are going to look at each other and say, oh, how did they figure that out? And how are we going to show that? 
And that's going to be the difficult one. Remember, Singapore was doing so well until they had the migrant workers come back and boom, Mm. they had to do more lockdowns. I've read the article that you wrote in National Geographic on April the 2nd. Kind of interesting to read that now because, you know, those numbers that you had then were absolutely staggering, especially for U.S. tourism. But now... Six weeks later, it's even worse, isn't it? Much worse. Uh, The tourism industry, which is predictable, uh, at that stage was hoping that by May they could see an opening, which I obviously did not believe in my article. Now the tourism industry is hoping that by 2021 that there might be more of a realistic shot, but... We're in a very difficult position here in the United States because we do not have a national policy that governs all these issues. So we have states that are opening up while the virus is claiming more lives in the state. A lot of people, uh, including here in my state, uh, are sort of spiking the football already. They think that this thing is behind us and it's, it's time to reopen. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is CNN's chief medical correspondent. Dr. Fauci and others have been very, very clear on this. It it is not. The virus is still out there. It is still contagious. We don't have enough immunity built up in our communities. We don't have enough testing built up in our communities. The trends have not gone downward to the point where you can say, okay, at least we got this thing in sort of kindling stage as opposed to a fire out there. And that will very much affect the ability of the United States to open up for tourism. Are you talking about even domestic tourism? Because this is the season, isn't it? This is the time. This is when people go on their holidays. And because the United States is so big and has so many wonderful places to visit, uh, the industry would like to see it opening up. The problem they're going to run across is that people are frightened and it's going to be hard to convince them to travel. You know, it's pandemic season. So you have people who who are desperate to go to get out of the house, desperate to see the great outdoors, desperate to have something to think about rather than um, homeschooling their kids. So people want to get away, but this is what it's like to travel right now in the U.S., I felt quite almost overwhelmed with sadness because, you know, airports usually are exciting and see people smiling, laughing, having a beer with their mates, and there was just none of that. And it felt grim, if anything. My friend Marion Dodds-Schulte took four flights over two days to get from Bay of Plenty to her home in Wyoming last week. Almost everything was shut at Auckland Airport, but it was when she arrived at the normally chaotic LA airport that the impact of the pandemic really hit. Anybody who's been to LAX knows just what it normally is like because you look down at every single hallway or or avenue going to different gates is just packed with people and there was nothing, absolutely nothing. There's just not the crowds and the normal, you know, lining up that you had to experience. Mm. I, didn't find, I didn't find the welcome any more friendly from <laughs> the customs people. Usually they're so grumpy and they seem just as grumpy. Did you sense tension when you got to the States? Because the situation there is so much more grim and I guess for a lot of people much more frightening. 
Yes, um, we were in a hotel in Los Angeles Airport, and that was, um, you know, just the checking in procedures where there's there's lines on the carpet. Um, you um, were signs saying mandatory to wear masks, and that's the biggest thing we've noticed is mask use. Is, is definitely a, a requirement in most states now. And on this whole trip, how did you feel? I mean, or even before you went on it, were you feeling nervous about it? Um, I was at first, and then I just realised we were going to go. And I'm sort of a believer that you've got to be—you've got to have the right attitude to make things, you know, go smoothly. And so our disappointment was we each had a bottle of this, um, you know, disinfectant spray. And we, they got taken off us because they were too large. And that kind of upset me a little bit. And I realized that I must have been uptight because I realized that was sort of almost like them taking away one of my pieces of armor. So, And we tried to buy it at airport. There was none of it available. It's coming into summer in the U.S. It's big holiday time now. Do you yeah. think that people feel confident about getting out and about? Um, in terms of enclosed areas, for instance, an airport terminal and being in an aircraft, I think there's still there's a huge fear factor in that. Um, what we're noticing, it's a big holiday weekend here, and uh, the Yellowstone National Park and Grand Teton National Park have opened. It's the first two national parks that have reopened. No hotels, but... Um, I thought they'd be empty, and, it, and I just saw um, some footage, photographs, and videos, and there's, there's a line about two miles long of all these, um, you know, recreational vehicles all coming into the national park. So what's that about? I think people feel safer in wide-open areas. They're outdoors, and people have been shut up for so long. It, it's very similar to probably what's going on in New Zealand. People are just craving to get out and have an adventure and do something. I ask people, you know, who are in our neighborhood, I've talked to them on the telephone, and most of them have canceled. Any of them who had plans to go on trips have canceled or the trips have been canceled, and they're all talking 2021. What's missing right now, says Elizabeth Baker, is a national strategy. So you have a patchwork is the kindest word I can put on it, where, for instance, in California, the governor said, certain beaches could open as long as people practice social distancing. It was a free-for-all, and now they're trying to control that. Florida, it's, as far as I can tell, this side of chaos in a lot of the beach areas because people just are ignoring it. In Miami, university students on their spring break are blatantly ignoring warnings about gathering in large crowds. The governor of Florida has told them to knock it off, but many seem unconcerned about the health risks. And without a national policy with um, enforcement, it's very, very hard to imagine um, anything like the ability to say, "Okay, this is rational. We can count on this kind of transparency about the the number of viruses, transparency about the cleanliness, et cetera, et cetera. So your country was amazing because you not only had um, a national policy enforced it, but you were very transparent about it. And now you all, everybody's talking about the, the proposed bubble between Australia and New Zealand so that your people can travel back and forth to each other's nation because you have established those guidelines, you've established parameters. And you're seeing examples of that in the beginning over in Europe. 
countries that border each other and are now willing to say, okay, we'll lift our border restrictions for people from this country. And so that's where the industry is going. It's following national policies. The problem is going to be how are you going to know if your airline company that your planes will be able to land in a certain country? How are you going to know if you are following the guidelines necessary for this kind of travel or that kind of travel? So basically, travelers have lost their confidence. Oh, yes. You see all kinds of polling and everything else. Now, I'll talk about America because I know that best. Even if airplanes start to open up, you have people who are appalled that they get on an airplane that's supposed to have social distancing. In fact, nearly every seat is filled and no one's wearing masks. And that's another thing that's confusing travellers because it's not the same rule for all. The International Air Transport Association has put out a set of guidelines, things like compulsory face masks, face temperature screening at airports and other hygiene steps that would cut the need for social distancing so that airlines can fill their planes with more passengers and start making money again. It wants all governments, airports and airlines to adopt the measures, but they're not binding. To show you how desperate things can get, a few days ago the the trade group that represents American Airlines at all the airline companies in the United States asked the government to please make it mandatory when people come to the airport to have their temperatures taken. And the government hasn't done that yet. And at the same time, you couldn't, I couldn't help but notice that Singapore, their civil aviation department, they instituted mandatory masks, mandatory temperature, mandatory health, and so on and so forth for airlines. And so that their citizens know that if they get on the airplane, masks are mandatory. Someone can't just decide not to wear it. They'll have to pay a penalty. This is what is going to be the shakedown How does the tourism industry work with the national governments, the local governments, and the customer to create a safe environment and to convince the traveler that it is safe? I think the biggest problem is going to be with cruise ships. Right now, the cruise ships are mostly in dry dock, but they are taking bookings for next year. But that's another podcast altogether. At the end of your article, you you talk about there is a glimmer of hope and you talk about China. But is that a glimmer of hope because, okay, they've got their domestic travel industry back on track, but it's going to be a long time before borders open up. Right, and glimmer of hope doesn't mean that it's going to happen tomorrow. Um, I, I, let me just say on China, and then I'll say something about um, New Zealand. In China, the drastic lockdown allowed for massive testing, massive tracking, so that you could have domestic. And that's a big deal. In the United States, if we could get anywhere near China, it would be a very big deal. Because remember, for a while there, when they just started up the domestic tourism, you on your iPhone, you would have a little colored dot to show whether or not you were tested and you were uh, virus-free. You don't even have to show it most of the places now. And in Europe, there was just a report from Austria, which, as you know, is opening up. And 
they are allowing some foreign travelers to come in. And they have this amazing offer when you land. For $200, you can take a test. And if you are virus-free, you don't have to go into a two-week quarantine. It's expensive, that's true, but each and everybody who travels today has to include these costs in the whole traveling costs. Uh, it's for health reasons, as we all know. So do you have any thoughts? This, say if I rang you this time next year, <laughs> what <laughs> do you have any idea what global tourism will be like in a year's time? Well, in a year's time, there will be countries you can trust, regions you can trust. There'll be countries that you want to stay away from. Like in my country, there are states already I, I don't think I want to go to in, in years. Um, I only trust certain states where I know that, that it's being governed by people who believe in science. And that's going to be safe. Look at Greece. Brilliant. They're going to be ready for tourism because they were so good on the pandemic. Welcome to Greece. The new normal at Athens International Airport. Wow. Thank you. Thorough COVID-19 testing. We're negative. Everyone off our flight is getting it. It's tough love, but Greece is defying expectations. Despite an aging population and creaking healthcare, it is holding off COVID-19. Portugal, very high, high marks for doing so well. They'll be ready. They aren't going to open everything up right away, but they've got it under control. I think there will be tourism in a year. It's going to be slow. The industry itself is trying to guess when they'll get back to 2019. <laughs> I think that's the wrong benchmark. I don't trust myself with numbers, but it's going to be small and slow. What always is important in this discussion is how poor people are going to be. Sure. People are not going to have the disposable income to travel like they used to. And I cannot say that too much. In our country, you cannot believe the hunger the middle class is in um, lines and lines and lines to get food. They don't have money to pay their mortgage and rent and put food on the table. So in some ways, I feel guilty even talking about um, luxury travel or leisure travel. But to get back to you all, you have this opportunity now, I think, to continue what you've been going through for a while is reexamining over-tourism. I was looking up how you guys are doing, and there was an interesting article from the University in Wellington. It was research showing that um, opening up your national parks to more and more tourism has increased the numbers who visit, but not what they contribute to the park, and has hurt habitat and some species recovery. And this was an opportunity to say, okay, before tourism comes back, let's take a hard look at this and see how we, what we want from opening up the parks. How many people can you come in? Let's re-examine our budgets because we're not doing enough for the species and the habitat and stuff like that. That's very interesting to me because it's taking advantage, you know, the old saying, don't let any crisis go to waste. And I've seen bits and pieces of that all over. I mean, how many people loved the pictures the photographs of Venice with clean canals. Yeah. How many shares of those goats running through the village in Wales? 
the turtles off the the coast of Brazil, just saying, okay, what are we going to do to make sure that we've learned some lessons? And already, cities as diverse as Milan and Seattle have said, okay, we're learning a lot, and we're going to close off miles of streets in the center of the city from cars and never let them back. The coronavirus pandemic has prompted an urgent rethink of how people get about. Madrid has banned cars from 29 streets this weekend to accommodate those taking their rationed outdoor exercise on bike and foot. Physical distancing is all but impossible on many of the continent's overcrowded mass transit systems. And what about Venice? I mean, have they, you know, made any new rules about the number of people that they'll have there and and the cruise ships? Nothing, because nothing's going on. But um, there are rumbles. We've gone from one extreme to the other. Here, a few months ago, we couldn't even pass each other. Now it's deserted. There's a certain charm about the empty waterways and plazas, albeit of an eerie nature. But it's an enchantment that comes at a high cost to the city's businesses, especially for those who make their money directly from tourism. Venice is one of those places with wonderful activist citizens and very difficult government. (laughs) So even the industry itself, from what I understand, the industry itself is saying we shouldn't be fighting regulations the way we have. We shouldn't be fighting this um, attempt to cut back on tourism. Maybe we should take a hard look at what's going on. This will be an opportunity to move towards intelligent tourism, with tourists who take the time to understand and get away from the frenetic tours of other times. It's a difficult move to make, but for now, admittedly under terrible circumstances, the streets belong to Venetians. I don't want to in any way infer that countries are deciding numbers per se. I'm saying countries are looking at this This pandemic maybe helps us to understand the role of tourism and particularly, of course, with that other crisis that's always with us, the climate crisis. I hope I have a round-trip ticket to New Zealand. (laughs) <laughs> well, you've got to and get... that you would let me in <laughs> well that's right you've got to get those numbers down Elizabeth <laughs> I don't think you're going to let me in um, but it's a fool's errand obviously to, to make a guess but um, it, we're not going to be in such a severe lockdown but we certainly are not going to be anywhere like we used to be travel in a couple of years when it starts to begin to look sort of normal people are going to be taking far fewer trips you're not going to just fly from New York to Paris for the weekend. You're going to see the top executives traveling as they must, but they're going to keep their watch their budgets and say, um, we've learned a lot about digital conferencing and meetings, and you guys don't have to travel as much as they used to. Conferences, very slow to get back. You're going to see private planes. They have um, 100% first class. So the haves and the have-nots are going to be more stark. That's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get the detail downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. Thanks to Elizabeth Becker and Marion Dodds-Schulte. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. Kakite anō.